Greetings and welcome to your Afrofuturist podcast. My name is Ahmed Best. I am your host. Thank you. Thank you so very much for joining me. I know it's been a while since we've had a podcast, um, but we've been working on a lot of different things in the AFPC network, one of which is our future forecasting game called Afrorhythms from the Future. Our beta version should be out by February of 2021, and Afrorhythms Live, the experience, should be out uh, at that time as well. So please forgive us for being away for so long, but um, we have some wonderful things on the horizon, as well as uh, possibly a, a new distribution for the Alpha Futurist podcast in the works, uh, which is why it took a while for us to get back on the air. But here we are. We're back. And um, to bring us back... I'm doing a, a series on the Afrofuturist podcast uh, called Z Future, and it is conversations with young people uh, in the post-Gen Gen, Gen X demographic. So I'm looking at millennials, I'm looking at zennials, I'm looking at Gen Zs, and thinking about the future that we're leaving them uh and how they will inhabit that future and how they might have to either deal with what we have been leaving for them or create systems or new systems that are new. Our first guest in Z Futures is Jade Fabello. Jade is an Austin, Texas-based writer, journalist, um, sometimes poet, sometimes um, political speech giver, and he talks about his experience in these rooms giving political speeches as a young man of color um, and how that affected his life and put him on the path where he is right now. The thing that I find so interesting about Jade is he's such an incredibly insightful person um, beyond his years. And I think we're going to run into that a lot on Z Future because there's just this access to information that a lot of these young people have and the dissemination of that information is so fast and vast and they recognize that systems have to change in order for us to survive. So they move through systems um, with a lot more dexterity than Gen X and older generations do because they're used to systems changing. Um, they're used to system change system change almost instantaneously. They update an OS to their cell phones every six months. And so the way they look at systems, um, they look at systems just like updating software. And I always find that very interesting when I talk to young people. Uh, Jade, in particular, as a young writer in, in Austin, has a very unique ability to look at the world at large and really f figure out what it means to him generationally. Um, he talks about legacy a lot and what we're doing when we say we're leaving a legacy. Is this legacy the folly of your ego or are you really paying attention to who this legacy you're leaving to and what they'll have to do in order to either continue your legacy or survive your legacy? Uh, he's, he's a wonderful person to talk to because of his insight uh, and his vision and uh, his outlook on the future. I have to say, talking to Jade was really eye-opening because a lot of times we get cynical about the youth and um, there's a lot of this idea that they're not paying attention to the things that they need to be paying attention to. It's actually the other way around. We're not paying attention to the things that need to be paid attention to because we're not listening to them. We're not paying attention to what they're telling us. We are using their youth as an excuse to ignore what they have to say. But they are so much more in tune, uh, so much more adept at working with where we are now in the world and into the future. Um, I say this in the podcast as well, but talking to Jade and talking to all the young people who are going to be in this section of Z Future really gives me hope. And it gives me hope because they're not thinking of things the way um, we usually think about things. And that's refreshing and it's necessary and it's needed in order to solve these big problems. So without further ado, the future. The future. 
Jade Fabello, thank you so much for being on the Afrofuturist podcast. Appreciate you being here. Yeah, happy to be here. It's super exciting. Um, so before we really get into your biography and how you came about doing what you're doing, um, I would love to get your perspective on something, um, sure, especially yeah. now when it comes to we're talking about governance and the future of politics and governing. And um, something that I think people my age and older always um, or don't really have a handle on, right? And I think that is how do we talk to you, right? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times when you're young, and it was like this when we're all young, but you're being talked at by people who think they know what you want. So what is the thing that you think, uh, as far as politics goes, that people are missing about you and your generation. Right, and so so much of what I've seen in my life is this kind of progression of absurdity uh, where a lot of people are saying that they know what's going on and like, trust us and let's do it this way, let's do it, uh, these tried and true methods of you know either opposition or governance or whatever have you. But uh, as results have returned uh, less than stellar every year, it's it's seemed to me that you know the things that we were so sure of and this you know this is true for every generation of young people uh really aren't working out the way that uh people uh have been saying that they they should and they would um and so there's there's a level of i think understanding with a lot of young folks that uh you know these tried and true methods that we've we've been trying aren't really returning great results uh as you know, our lived conditions are getting worse and worse and our rents are uh, at ridiculous levels. I think there just is an aspect of humility that might be missing uh, when talking to young people of saying like, this is how we do it, but how we doing it isn't really working. (laughs) Um, So I, I think, yeah. What is a message that you think really resonates with you and with the folks your age from anyone in government? Well, I think, um, as I talked about in the, the story I, I wrote about um, my time as you know, a, a young political speaker, I think there's a level of, uh, I mean, people can see the conditions that we're living in and that uh, things aren't so <laughs> wonderful necessarily. And I think just, straight talk basically uh there's there's countless platitudes out there that um only really work when things are going modestly okay um feel-good messages aren't doing a lot for people when uh you know they're uh uncertain of like if a family member is going to get sick or something or uh, not having insurance or whatever have you um it's it's the same kind of thing of like you know when you're in a working at some place and the bosses and everybody are giving you like nice standing desk or all these other perks or things like that. Those are all well and good. But if the conditions that you're working in aren't also uh, up to snuff, then I don't really give a, I don't, I don't care about the standing desk. Um, and so platitudes divorced from substance. Uh, it's becoming harder and harder for people to, uh, to accept platitudes when, uh, the basic necessities aren't being met. Do you have faith in the systems as they stand now? And, and, or will you be okay? Or would you be okay? You're in, in, you know, speaking for yourself and for the, the uh, folks that you are, you share a conversation with, would you be okay with completely rebooting the system? Rebooting? You said, yes. Yeah, I think, uh, yes, <laughs> to answer your question directly, um, I'd be okay with a, a reboot. Um, you know, I, I consider myself as part of uh, the Trayvon generation, which is that uh, term coined by Elizabeth Alexander, I think, from uh, the story she wrote in New York not too long ago. And I remember growing up and um, just seeing, uh, like when, when, when Trayvon was killed, I remember, I think I must have been in middle school at the time. And I remember uh, watching that on my ma's like white, tiny TV in her room, uh, the trial and everything unfolding. And I, I grew up watching 
people debate, uh, you know, whether a life like mine matters or not. And I remember thinking, too, that uh, at some point, you know, buying into some of the arguments that are being said of, like, you know, Trayvon deserving to die, because that was easier for me to accept uh, that reality than the randomness of uh, racist attacks like that. And then when I remember when the verdict came out and they found Zimmerman not guilty, uh, realizing the pain in my heart and the pain in my chest and thinking that was unjust. Um, and uh, that happened again and again and again uh, throughout my life. And I had to stop um, just for my own uh, sake of somebody experiencing the world and trying to navigate through the world. I had to stop valuing my life based on what the current system as is, is saying uh, is justice or is um, uh, right or fair. Um, and so as you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that I uh, have a full understanding of all of the uh, the frameworks of uh, abolition or prison abolition or all that kind of thing. I'm doing more reading, um, as so many people are. Uh, but when when this most recent wave of uh, of deaths happened, I remember when uh, I saw the news about Ahmed Arbery Arbor, uh, and um, uh, Breonna Taylor and all that, uh, my, my first thoughts as somebody who's grown up in this time were of um like when, when people say you know arrest the 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 killers of rihanna taylor my first thought is not oh i think that matters to an extent my first thought is uh but i rather a system where you know she she doesn't die and that we have to think about justice in uh a way that uh is punitive or uh uh seeking retribution for the stuff that's already happening. So when, when all this stuff started happening again, my, I was thinking like, you know, the two things I want right now are to, you know, bring the dead black people back to life and, you know, leave me alone. Um, cause it, I, I've been navigating this space of, uh, watching people, uh, engage with, uh, a lot of people engage with like racism on a substance level for the first time in these past few months and feeling a level of catharsis for feeling a, a little bit less lonely and uh, thinking through and engaging in these things, but also uh, a level of frustration of seeing people where I was at when I was 15. I'm 22 now. Um, and with that, uh, I, and that's something I've seen in a lot of conversations I've had with my, my black peers my age uh, of just feeling frustration um, some level of catharsis, uh, just all these mixed emotions, uh, and all of that has been brought about by uh, these systems that are wholly inadequate in both what we conceive of as justice, uh, so when there are the times when uh, killers are arrested or XYZ, it, it's, they're, they're somewhat hollow victories because, you know, the dead are still dead, and um, I, I am a big fan of imagining uh, a world that's better than that because you know the way it is now is not simply not good enough um and on that what do you think in the in the in this reimagined world what do you think is a system that is happening now that we could do without um you know i think that's a a great question and uh i won't um i i, I as a writer i think of uh my kind of role uh, is to just, in, yeah, engage with the world, not necessarily um, prescribe the changes, but just, you know, uh, engage with them. And uh, sometimes in that engagement, it, it requires demanding uh, that the world be different. Um, and so your question was, you know, what's a system that exists right now that I could see without? Um, I mean, there, there's such a big focus on... Um, you know, this election coming up here uh, in November. And I, so Trump was elected when I started college in 2016. Um, you know, 18 to 22, it's a very formative age in general. Uh, and um, I find myself uh, frustrated in a lot of different ways because I hear so often about, you know, 
how terrible this guy is. And he is. And I, I, I study <laughs> and watch the news very diligently and I read history and I know all the, uh, I'm well aware of that. But I, I also find myself very frustrated if, you know, if he is as bad as we say he is, and he is, uh, how is it that he's been able to get to the point that he is now, um, that he's still uh, sitting in office and that we have to pretend as though when he says something like, I'm not going to leave office if I lose or something like that, we don't uh, fully take him seriously for what he is. I think there's a lot of what I have seen as, um, so there's a little bit of background. Yeah, I, I spent years as a, a uh, political speaker for a lot of uh, liberal social circles, um, kind of wealthier uh, elite circles, where they do fundraiser talks at fundraisers or these having conversations, uh, kind of gatherings and all these kind of things. Um, and I'd see so much of like this kind of like, like oh, like hands, like finger wagging at, at Trump and people like that. Um, and uh, I, of course, <laughs> I, I think the finger wagging is so not enough. Um, I agree with the idea of like disliking everything he's doing and uh, disliking is a very light word. But uh, if we're not going to do more to oppose him, then we can't just sit here and finger wag. There's so much... Uh, it, to answer your question, uh, <laughs> um, I, I I do find myself very frustrated with um, you know our, our systems of electoralism that are in place that have all these checks and balances that I've been told about throughout my education that are supposed to work so full through foolproof. But um, I remember listening to like the NPR morning podcast and when Trump did some absurd thing that was so harmful, they talked about his actions as though they were talking about the weather. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Well, I wonder how uh, this will play out in this kind of way. Not treating it like it's something that, um, not treating his, uh, his statements and his actions as though they're as harmful, as damaging as they are, wanting to fit them so cleanly into the existing order and the way of thinking about things. But um, I think when you're dealing with, so, so I find myself frustrated, not just with people like Trump who are engaged in cruelty and on a, on a big level. I, I think Adam Sewer of the Atlantic talks about how for people of his ilk, cruelty is the point. Um, and I find myself not just frustrated with them, but for people who have touted these ways of opposition that have come up as wholly inadequate. Um, I find myself not believing in, systems that have failed to oppose uh, him up to this point. Um, yeah. <laughs> Let me stop there for a moment. No, that's a great um, answer and a great observation. And um, I think it's the difference between working within the system and changing the system. Right. And um, it's very difficult for the older folks, like the Gen, Gen X generation, mm -hmm. And older, um, more like the, the the baby boomers more so than the Gen Xers, because you know me being a Gen Xer, we're kind of this in the middle group, mm -hmm. right? That um, was there to help jumpstart the internet, and now seeing the right. the um, the effects of what the internet is, right? Um, and we're kind of the last of the generation that had this heaviness of the civil rights movement right our mm -hmm. parents were in it yeah. and your generation is a bit removed from it and you know my son who is who is 10 years younger than you mm. the civil rights movement is more so a bit of history than it is palpable right how do you feel about the civil rights movement and um how it reflects to what's happening today do you believe, and this is a bit of a loaded question, so forgive forgive the question, but do you believe that it was effective enough to have long-lasting um, repercussions even through mm -hmm. your generation? Right. Um, and so, you know, uh, I, I do consider myself a student of history in a way, or more so a student of social change. 
one of my favorite courses in college was uh, a class about communication and social change. Um, you know, I've, I've read the autobiography of Malcolm X. I, I've spent a lot of time engaging with the civil rights movement on a couple of different levels. Um, and I, I wrote something um, for this, this uh, I think it was the Brown Jour- Journal of Politics, Economics, and something or other. I don't know. There was a third thing. But um, uh, I, I wrote about how the way I learned about the civil rights movement, um, it was very much uh, in a way that, you know, any system will teach things in a way that helps it support itself. Uh, uh, most <laughs> entities of any kind are interested in self-preservation. And so when I learned about the civil rights movement, it was very much a, you know, Martin Luther King uh, walked from point A to B and Rosa Parks sat on a bus. Malcolm X was around, but he was violent and that kind of thing. And so I wrote this this paper about how, um, you know, how uh, nonviolence is a standard held up uh, disproportionately to, to black people in America. And I, I looked through some old uh, uh, guidelines and standards uh, here in Texas where you could find parts upholding the nonviolence of the uh, civil rights movement. They're, in the same chapter, they talk about the, the great, glorious revolution, American Revolution, which is, of course, changes that were achieved through violence. Um, and so as I think through the impacts of uh, the civil rights movement, I can't help but filter it through my education and the watered-down version of it that I received in my, uh, my upbringing. Um, and the core of what you asked, you know, the diff- the, uh, if you change something um, inside a system or outside of it. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a question as old as time and everyone's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a hard question to answer, (laughs) of course. Um, but I think generally what my motto is these days, um, is, uh, there's the leftist podcaster, Michael Brooks, who passed away earlier this month. Uh, and he had a quote that was circulating, um, be harsh with systems and be kind with people. Um, and that's something that I've really taken to. Uh, so with the civil rights movement, there is so much of the radicalism of it that it's downplayed um, to where there, the parts of it that helped inspire change existed largely outside of the system uh, in many respects. A lot of it did. Um, but I also, keeping in mind that last quote, I like to give grace to, to people who are uh, making genuine efforts to try their best to uh, create substantial changes. But within that, uh, I think that uh, if trying your best uh, isn't good enough, then uh, you're not entitled to people enjoying or just being like, well, you're not entitled to people appreciating your your best effort if your best effort isn't good enough um as i I said in one of my stories about how you know if i'm not alive in the best world that you can imagine then there's a problem with your imagination um and so i i never want to downplay the the advancements made by the civil rights movement and all of the countless people who tried in uh, a thousand different facets uh to um you know make change happen but when again, I think about my education, it's, it's so pared down and watered down the actions that took place there. And I think people are generally not amazing at recognizing when they're living through history. Um, and I think so much of what's happening now and so much that's been happening in the past decade or so, uh, is reaching a scale that is uh, comparable, if not, uh, moving beyond, uh, some of the, the, uh, actions of the civil rights movement. With that, though, uh, <laughs> a lot of our organizing efforts aren't um, part of the, the, the impact of downplaying the, the uh, radicalism of the uh, civil rights movement is people not being prepared to organize on that uh, on the scale that is required to create uh, substantive change. But there has always been organizers since that since the civil rights movement until this day and before you know, these past few months that have been doing active work, 
uh, but on a widespread base, there's a lot of people who don't understand that, you know, it's not just a random happenstance that Roses Park sat on a bus. It was a coordinated effort. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a wonderful insight. And I do want to get back to that idea of civic engagement and movements um, in, in in your age demographic and into the future. But I really want to know what got you so engaged in 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 wanting to to write about this and wanting to be involved and wanting to speak for um these politicians that asked you to speak for them like you and you mentioned a lot about Trayvon Martin and and Trayvon's death kind of impacting you in a heavy way what are what are these things that made you want to engage so much in this mm-hmm. so i grew up in um in South Austin, and I at my high school, it was four percent black, uh, and my college, University of Texas at Austin, was also four percent black. Though I say that four percent of fifty thousand at UT felt like more than four percent of uh, three thousand at my high school. But um, I, I have, I grew up, um, you know, with uh, watching, you know, all all these. Uh, these deaths of people who looked like me or, uh, people that I knew. And, um, I think, you know, you bringing up the generational difference in terms of growing up with the internet is such an interesting thing because, uh, I mean, I, in my formative years, I, I saw all these videos of, uh, people dying. Um, and it, uh, you know, it's only in reflection that you I realize how much of an impact it had on me. Um, because, you know, when you're experiencing the world for the first time, uh, things that you, uh, what you experience is uh, seen as normal. Um, but they're compounding that and the microaggressions I received in my growing up as one of the few black people in my schools. Um, and just feeling this general kind of pain and weight in my chest, I felt like I wanted to do something and I had to do something. Um, and really I started speaking as a way to try to ask those questions and find answers to them. And through that, I, uh, ended up, uh, in these rooms, I really reflectively, don't think we're the right places to be in um, because um, as I was, as I was saying, um, systems are designed to, you know, support themselves. And I, I get all this messaging of, uh, uh, or I, I grew up witnessing all this black death and, and I get that with all the same standard American messaging that you get of climb uh, the social ladder and be, great or do X, Y, and Z and, uh, you know, make a legacy or all those kind of things. And so you fuse those two things together and you find yourself thinking that you have to, um, you hear all your life that the right way to, uh, to help people to solve the pain in your chest is to climb this social ladder and get this platform and, uh, be a part of the system as it is, uh, so that you can eventually one day uh, do some good. But along that path, I have found that uh, there are so many compromises you're asked to make left and right, and they tell you that change has to be so achingly incremental. uh, And you, so many people end up losing themselves uh, along that way. And there's so many politicians who I don't think are quote unquote bad people. I, I, I seldom believe in the existence of just bad people, sans a few exceptions. Um, and it, it, the system is not well set up to uh, uh, encourage good, valued um, politics. Because you're, you're told that you have to make these compromises, but you end up leaving so many people behind. And you, you, you're told that you're supposed to reach across this aisle, but that aisle is like this chasm that contains the deaths of so many people. Um, and as you're soaking in praise and receiving all this, this uh, thanks from these uh, wealthy elite and things of the sort, it's very hard to see that because you also want the security that's promised by um, 
you know, having uh, more financial stability and having insurance and all these things. And as they, as people strip away, you know, some basic rights to people who are, you know, in my circles and who uh, do not have access to, you know, simple financial or health security or home security or things like that. Um, the system is again, self-supporting and encourage you to go down this route that encourages you to compromise your morals in all these different ways. Um, and what was your question? I really, <laughs> um, what made you so engaged? Like at, at such a young age, you're, you're very, um, and, and please, I'm not, please don't take this as a, as a pejorative, but you are, you are so very well versed in and passionate about, um, what's going on currently and are able to articulate it in a way that reaches the reaches through the um, age ranges, right? Mm -hmm. I can sit and listen to you and agree with you um, in, in so many respects, uh, partially because we're, we're pretty close in ideology. Um, mm -hmm. But the other part is because um, there's an idea of, wait, maybe we can do this better. Right. Yeah. Maybe there's a maybe there's a way that um, we're not thinking about that we should start thinking about and have no problem with asking the question and implementing it and not be. And I think this is kind of inherent of being black in this country. Um, mm -hmm. Just having the ability to go, this is not working. Right. Yeah. Let's change this. And the only reason why we're not changing it is because you don't want to. It has absolutely right. nothing to do with the mechanism. And um, a lot of times those conversations don't happen um, as, as uh, informatively with um, people your age because they're worried about their future. They're worried about paying off student loans. They're worried mm -hmm. about how they're going to pay the rent. So they end up just falling into perpetually the same system that, mm -hmm. you know, we as the creative class are trying to exterminate. Right. So what what was what was it that engaged you? What got you and and really gave you the conviction to start writing and talking about this? Yeah. Um, I, well, I would say. Uh, that you know, I think I grew up in a household uh, that that had a lot of love in it, um, and I I did experience you know uh, my my fair share of, of tragedy early on in life. You know, my I my dad hasn't been in the picture for most of it, and I had a stepfather who passed away when I was I was rather young. Um, but through that, and from an extended family and uh, my mother and brother, um, I think I have generally received a lot of love and support, at least in my home uh but you know outside of it there's so often that i was feeling uh, all these different stressors and uh things of pain as you know it, it it being black in america it's hard to separate and it's not really possible to separate a lot of the times uh again you know the killings of trayvon's or uh learning about system x y and z that again wasn't designed for us in any type of way um but my my kind of general approach to life these days is to you know i want to be able to to show people the love that I have received uh, that has allowed me to do the things that I enjoy doing uh, so that they can in turn uh, do, do similar things. I, I read this, uh, I, I'm very good at going on tangents, uh, <laughs> but um, I, I, <laughs> um, I read this story um, called the, the white darkness, which actually isn't about race, but it's a, it's about uh, this guy who kept uh going on expeditions to the Arctic and walk, walking across it. Um, and he'd carry like, you know, these hundred pound sleds behind him going these arduous and grueling journeys. And he did it once and it was so dangerous. And he had, he had a wife and kids, but that's what he felt like he had to do. Um, and then he did it again. And then he did it a third time. Um, and he was going to walk all the way across this time. And it was this became this very, uh, at some point it flipped over to me as the reader thinking like, uh, Hey, this guy has some level of responsibility to, you know, his family and his communities and things like that. And he's going on these quests that are so dangerous. Um, and he didn't end up making it in the end. He, he, uh, uh, on that third expedition, he, uh, the last one being a solo journey, he made it like 75% of the way. And then I think he made the right character choice of like 
calling the helicopter to come get him and um, bring him home, but he he had too much frostbite and all that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, he, he died, and it's a really sad story. But within that, there's an aspect of uh, what he felt he had to do in this world was go to the Arctic uh, and do these expeditions. And on, on a romantic level, there's an aspect of that that I enjoy. There's the practical level of you have responsibilities to your, your world and your people um, to where you can't just do those things in a vacuum um, without scrutiny. But on some level, I think um, that what I want for people is to be able to go on their own Arctic adventures. But again, very loose interpretation of uh, uh, how I mean that. But I think I, I get so frustrated with these systems that prevent people from just, you know, living, uh, you know, the life of uh, that some artists get to live or uh, just following what they feel like they have to do. Um, there's so many, of these blocks and oh man what was your question again <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, just pretty much talking about what engaged you what what is this yes thing that oh, made yes you want that's to, one i'm gonna to do this i'm gonna answer that directly this time uh, <laughs> <laughs> um yes so there's that that whole love aspect and wanting to uh engage with the world and love the world and um uh that kind of thing and then there was two just seeing seeing the news that i i grew up with because i i think i've been watching the news since i was like eight and i've had to uh uh you know do some deprogramming in that too from whatever news sources i was getting um but uh i i feel oh that's it i remember um <laughs> you know i most black people in america everyone goes through their like first big encounter with racism that really contextualizes all the small things that you've experienced in life. And for me, there was a moment in my junior year of high school, um, again, went to a majority white school and there was a, there was this substitute teacher in, um, my AP US history class. And there was three black kids in the class, including myself at some point during the class, this teacher came over and showed me a little post-it note that says, Hey, come see me after class, something like that. And then I, I went outside in the hallway. I hadn't thought much of it. And he had gathered me and the two other guys, um, Q and Andrew, uh, two other black guys in class. And well, I'm sure this guy had the best of intentions or what have you. He, he took it upon himself to tell us how great it was, how articulate we were. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> uh, he, mm -hmm. he, 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 no, he took the time to mention Obama in there somewhere. Uh, <laughs> and just all this kind of stuff of, uh, uh, cause most of the racism I've experienced is from liberals. Um, and this was one of the, the bigger moments for me. And I've so moved on from it cause I can't remember all the ridiculous things he said in that conversation, but it really made me think and was like, that was weird, right? <laughs> um, uh, and uh, contextualize a lot of different things I experienced growing up. And I, I've always had this big afro. Um, I actually haven't cut it now since high school prom. But I got lice twice growing up because people would just touch my hair without permission. And, um, and just all these kind of, you know, being this, uh, this, it's just all these comments, uh, growing up of like whenever I, I i dated a white girl in high school and all the comments are like oh she must have jungle fever or something like that these things that i mean we have a very racist culture i don't think i'm saying anything revolutionary with that but <laughs> um no, no i think it, it really <laughs> yeah um but it really does uh uh appear at all ages and um and my my great liberal progressive city uh with all these liberal kids saying these things to me. And I'm sure I said plenty of harmful things as a kid too. Um, or I know I did. Um, but I think that moment was my realization moment for racism that made me reflect on everything and uh, make me think about how I felt about, you know, the death of Trayvon or whoever else. Um, as all of my white peers were resharing all these videos, these lynchings, um, and just absorbing that as a kid, uh, that was the moment that really made me reflect and want to uh, 
answer these questions that I had. That's awesome. What do you enjoy writing? Do you enjoy fiction, nonfiction? Do you enjoy Mm -hmm. writing about uh, civic engagement, governance? Like, what is the what is the thing that you enjoy doing? And where do you want to go with it? Do you want to, you know, eventually write more of something? Right. Um, I really want to be um, like. Oh, there's so many types of writing that I like. Uh, I I think James Baldwin's my biggest uh, writing inspiration. Um, I love the stuff that James Baldwin has written. Um, and I would love to get more into fiction one day. I also very much like, I grew up reading a lot of manga, watching a lot of anime. <laughs> um, Me too. Uh, I, <laughs> right on, very cool. <laughs> All right, a conversation for another time. Last yes, year, absolutely. Probably. We'll talk about that. <laughs> very cool. But, um, I, I, I would love to write, um, I would, the thing that I really enjoyed about manga growing up though, was, um, you find all these, uh, these kids in impossible situations, uh, of facing down these big evil oppressive regimes or what have you, or space aliens. Um, give me a comic, but give then, me a name, give me a comic that you really like think- manga uh, One Piece is my favorite, um, and uh, Attack on Titan too. Uh, Attack on Titan is a series that I think really has evolved beyond like the typical stuff you see in shonen manga, the young boys manga. Yeah. But um, what I liked about those stories is that you know they they're able to achieve victory with flair, and they're they can uh, it's they're such feel good stories of like you know. Uh, the themes are always like, you know, you're able to protect your loved ones because you're, because uh, you can do, you know, shoot energy blasts from your hands or something. And there's there's something so appealing to that. And I think a lot of that resonates with a lot of minorities and uh, black people that, um, you know, you're, you're able to kind of have uh, the strength to protect the things that you hold dear. And uh, this is a world that takes a lot of those things away from us. And so I think that's why a lot of uh black people like anime which is the question you asked obviously um (laughs) but um yeah i would love to one day write uh you know some fiction along those lines but my favorite book is probably ralph ellison's invisible man um yeah absolutely um that there's so much of that book that i found so eerily similar to to my lived experience um a, a young black political speaker pulled in all these different directions um so, I mean, uh, that's it's a hell of a thing to say. I'd like to write an Invisible Man one day, but uh, I, I, w- I would love to get more into fiction while writing the types of essays that James Baldwin writes. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think that's um, actually very important nowadays, especially for your, um, your age group, because you have an access that we didn't have. Mm-hmm. And um, as a kid... Our our bandwidth was so incredibly narrow that we had to do a lot of traveling and and really searching for the information that we got. And you know, much like you, I was in a I was in a household where questions were always being asked and mm-hmm. answered. And both my parents were extremely Afrocentric, so I had this very strong foundation in the continent of Africa and. It's rituals. My mother's a percussionist, so she, she she's an African percussionist. Oh, wow. So um, she would teach me percussion, and through that, and through playing with African musicians, I would learn a lot of the culture. So I had a very strong sense of self. Mm-hmm. However, both my parents were also involved in the civil rights movement, but artists in the civil rights movement. So theater yeah. was a big deal, and um, which brought me to where I am now. You know, doing theater, mm-hmm. being an actor, a writer, and a and a director. Um, and I'm curious about these new um, ways to communicate, especially communicating mm-hmm. in the way you're communicating. I would love to get your take on social media because mm-hmm. social media is um, a place that is uh, extremely complex to navigate. Mm-hmm. And it seems as if um, there is much more of an emotional engagement in social media than there is in traditional media because you can respond. Uh-huh. And um, 
dealing with the emotional um, response from getting that feedback is a lot different than writing to the New York Times to complain about an op-ed, right? You go directly to the audience. Um, how, How do you handle that? And is that is that something that in in the way you handle it, is that something that is learned or is that something generational? Do you even think about it that way? Mm. Yeah, I, I think that is such an interesting thing to highlight in terms of the differences between generations. Um, I I definitely would put it in the category of learned skills um, with any you know new media revolution. There's always been. Uh, pitfalls and uh, uh we're seeing a lot of big pitfalls but um uh it, it varies from everybody i talk to and everyone it is a, such a thing now for everyone to have their own kind of relationship with social media uh and for me personally i think i since i've, I've done the work as a speaker and uh writer and things like that i personally am able to engage with social media and the stuff i put out there in a way that's uh you know uh, everything positive or negative, I, I take it for what it is in the moment and then don't let it transmute into something more in my mind um, uh, in terms of comments like addressed to me. But um, there, I think something that's, that's really important, something I think through a lot is, you know, just with that access, which is so great in so many different ways in terms of being able to... Uh, acquire new skills and meet new people and do all these interesting stuff, interesting things. Uh, There is such a greater access again to all these new types of traumas. Um, And people are only able or made to take in so much at a time. And with how um, civic engagement is often framed, I find a lot of people are um, believe the idea that, you know, it is part of the social good to just, kind of do what's called doom scrolling and just look through all this terrible news and absorb all this pain. Um, and part of my whole, you know, being kind with people thing, um, you know, people are only meant to process so much suffering at once. And it's such a, that's such a difficult thing to navigate right in there. Cause you, you, people sense that, um, you know, a lot of things need major changes and they want to be involved and they want to help, uh, in some way. And, without um you know good solutions available to them a lot of people's solutions is to just kind of feel all the suffering and take in not only their own suffering but the suffering of the world and while i do believe in like you know kind of communal approaches to solving uh pain and you know everyone helping each other out uh it it is such a damning thing that i've seen a lot of people witness that i've i've experienced um where you know every notification on my phone, I, uh, just being flooded with, um, it's a deep, a deep pain, a deep pain at being aware of, uh, the scale of suffering that can take place in this world, uh, and the cruelty of systems X, Y, or Z. Um, and so, you know, it, it's hard for me to make a, uh, like, you know, a kind of assessment of like social media, good, bad, or something like that, because it is just part of life in the world. Um, this is something that, I mean, I just missed out on MySpace, I think. My brother uh, caught it, <laughs> so I'm going to frame that. And, uh, uh, I, <laughs> yeah, but um, I, I've been on Facebook since, I don't know, maybe I was 10, 8, uh, no, not something around those, 10 to 12, 14. Um, and so, you know, it's always been a part of my life. It's been a part of the lives of some people in my generation. Um, and... Uh, I mean, yeah, it's as it's as natural as as breathing. I feel for a lot of us, um, and you just kind of uh, adjust uh, to what you're able to take in process while still trying to be, you know, uh, a socially responsible person. Yeah, I'll, I'll take a I'll take a beat there. <laughs> Do you think social media has a future? Um. Yeah, um, I. I would say so. In you know, taking into account uh, social media exists within all these you know capitalist systems that we've been uh, hinting at and talking about, uh, and there's so much of the way that social media operates now that is a part of those uh, 
those same systems that we should be questioning more, uh, that we should be like not saying like, as I just said, you know, this is just the way it is. But um, uh, I, I definitely, it's hard for me to imagine uh, a world that is not as connected as um, it is now. Uh, so many people, uh, you know, best friends from childhood are through the internet these days and through social media. Um, uh, and like, especially now in pandemic, I, all my relationships are being maintained through, uh, I, me and my friends have a Slack channel, which I know is usually more for businesses, but, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I absolutely think, but it, it, it needs to be put under the same scrutiny, uh, as all these other systems that we're talking about. Um, I want to pivot, um, and and thank you, Jay. This has been such a fantastic conversation, um, and I really uh, appreciate your point of view, um, especially you know for people who are uh, my age and older, as I said earlier, because I don't think we're doing enough listening, um, and I think we have to pay attention a lot more to um, the way the younger generations are thinking and believing in things because. Um, I've found that you guys are so much more uh, sophisticated when it comes to changing systems. You've been doing it all your lives, right? And that is something that uh, the older generation who is in power now, specifically in government power now, that is something that they have an extremely hard time doing, right? And as you said earlier, we are kind of seeing the detriment of these systems that we were told to have absolute faith and trust in, right? Mm -hmm. All it takes is one con man to show you that the entire system can be rigged. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and one of the biggest things that is about to happen in the next couple of months um, is we are about to vote. And, right. um the the seeds of voting as being an untrusted way uh, to decide an election are being sown right now. Mm -hmm. I really would love to hear your take on how we vote as a society and how we should vote from your point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's something I do think about a lot. Um, I think, you know, I, I was having a conversation the other day um, about, uh, because, you know, my, my uh, I'm very open with my stance on, uh, I think, the failures of liberalism and uh, most democratic politicians. Um, but I was having a conversation the other day about how, um, it, it was in context of uh, framing a, of a story that I'm writing. Uh, and it was suggested to me that uh, uh, that we talk about, you know, if we remove Trump, you know, this is how if, if Trump isn't removed, you know, this is how we continue to fight. Um, and if we we do and Biden comes in, like, you know, the fight isn't over by any means. And I, I took issue with that um, because it was framing um, removing Trump as step one. But I think we are many, many steps into uh how this new landscape is going to look um i i when when trump was election one of my greatest frustrations was that i was already very annoyed at um uh you know the 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 people who are supposed to be quote unquote the good guys um before he came in uh and so when i think about the place of voting um i you know I don't think it's not important, but I also think that uh, there has been so much active effort to strip away any kind of semblance of power that it's had that uh, if people want to champion voting as the most important thing, then these institutions needed to be a lot stronger than they were and are. Um, there are such ridiculously long lines in, in black communities and uh, uh, poor communities uh, uh, polling places after polling places are closing. And so I think what you're seeing with a lot of people in my generation is this kind of implicit understanding that um, a voting cannot be the only way of uh, 
it kind of falls into what I consider a lot of the platitudes of, uh, of change where if, if it's not having enough power, uh, as is, then we can't just say, just go vote as the only kind of remedy for, uh, uh for the situation that we find ourselves in. Um, I, I was, um, an editor, uh, at this fashion magazine, uh, as fashion arts magazine at UT for, uh, a couple years, I had some odd 30 writers under me and I would help them through their stories. And it really is, it was so telling to me that I would see so often, like, you know, even the most bright eyed, um, not engaging with politics, their entire life kind of people, um, kind of picking up on this sense of, um, things aren't going great. Again, that's downplaying it. But, uh, I, uh, I think one of the most telling things about my generation is actually this story uh, by, I think her name is Gabriela Paella uh, or something like that. Uh, and it was called, uh, Why Does Everybody Want Their Crushes to Run Over Them With Their Car? Um, and <laughs> it's this kind of generational thing of just like uh, the way a lot of people express <laughs> their that they think someone's attractive or a crush or something like that. They, they'll be like, oh, I really want... Harry Styles to, you know, step on me or run me over or something like that. And uh, on one level, it's just a, kind of a, a absurd and funny way to say, like, oh, I'd let them do anything to me. Uh, but that story quoted this uh, writer. Um, oh, uh, I have it pulled up, actually. Uh, who said something about uh, um, how... The, the point when the masses like really started taking this up as a as a thing to say uh, was when um, uh, it was the moment we realized the scales had tipped. The world is doomed and the best we can hope for is to look at someone beautiful who loves me while we die. Um, <laughs> and while I'm not a doomer and I believe in the fact that better things are possible and uh, I always do and I, I always will, um, there is this deep sense that I pick up from the people around me that it, it, it's very fatalistic. Uh, is again, we've seen the erosion of, of these institutions that were already problemed to start. Uh, we, we, we have never seen supposed to basically. Um, and, uh, again, how they're supposed to not great in the first place. Um, but there's this, there's this very fatalistic sense, uh, that a lot of people have here. And, um, it's, yeah, I think it's very telling. I think it's very telling that, uh, it just, <laughs> that, we're, that we're hoping that, uh, you know, Natalie Dormer or Tessa Thompson <laughs> runs us over. But, um, <laughs> uh, Ahmed, what was your question? <laughs> just about voting and yes. how, yes. how, how do you think we should go about yeah. voting? Like what oh, is, what yeah. do you think is, the, is a good, um, future fix for what the vote is supposed to guarantee us yeah well within that you're then uh all of the those other uh aspects of voter suppression need to be fully addressed before voting again is pushed as the main important thing we need to do um if if we're talking about operating in the system that we have as as we have it um and two the whole vote blue no matter who thing doesn't really make sense to me if um, there's so many of the people, I mean, they just, the democratic platform, uh, committee just shot down the idea of adopting Medicare for all or legalizing weed with the last day or two. Um, and that's an absurd thing to do in the middle of, uh, of a pandemic and people are really lived conditions are pretty bad for a lot of people here. Uh, I think we are a far more unstable nation than, um, we have ever been willing to admit. And that's been true for a while. Um, so it, it can't just be, you know, good guy, bad guy, you really need to interrogate, uh, uh, the, uh, the people who are, who are up for these positions. We just elected, um, uh, a great progressive here in Austin, uh, Jose Garza for the DA office. And, you know, he's, he's a kind of person I, I, I'd be happy to support. Um, and within that too, there's a lot of hero worship of our politicians and, uh, big figures like that, you know, uh, Again, be kind with people, be harsh with systems. I think I will always like Jose Garza as a person. Um, but, you know, if he proves inadequate in the position that he's in, then 
I'm not going to support him being in that position. Um, and so it really voting, if that's what we're, we're promoting, it has to be something that's far more critical uh, than it is in, in the current moment. Uh, just because someone has a D next to their name or uh, are coded in blue doesn't mean that there's somebody who is going to be helpful to people like me uh, and people who uh, exist on the margins. Yeah, I 100% yeah. agree. Um, without so sounding like too pie in the sky or like Barack Obama, um, mm -hmm. what gives you hope? Mm. Yeah, uh, as I was talking about earlier, as I was experiencing a lot of, uh, a lot of people are describing as, you know, white people realizing racism is a thing for the first time in the past few months. Um, as I've sorted through some of the frustrations there, there, there has been this great catharsis. And um, I, you know, I've been in this kind of emotional place for a long time as I've processed, oh, you know, maybe the way that, you know, funeral homes or something like that exploit people who have just lost somebody or how capitalism does bad thing in uh, this place or uh, how there's some uh, genocide on the far side of the world. I've been in this place of engaging with those terrible parts of humanity for a long time. But I'm also a big believer, both personally and for the world, of the um, the great depth of human experience. Of uh, I don't look at the, the pain more than I look at the love necessarily. I look at them as existing at uh, the same time in the same space. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I had a lot of tragedy in my early life. And I spent a lot of my uh, young adult life and youth thinking that... Um, I was tough or uh, strong for having gone through those things so young. Um, but part of that toughness was this idea in my mind that I'd already paid my suffering to the world and that I was done with that part of life. But life fluctuates between highs and lows and incredible, incredible lows, incredible highs. Um, and so it used to be the case that when something new and tragic would happen to me, I wouldn't think of it as tragic because I had already dealt with my dealt with my pain. But um, sometimes trauma is just trauma, and that's not inherently a bad thing. Um, I am a big fan of just experiencing life for all that it is, and so I am hopeful in the fact that you know, as bad as things are, love and life still exist at the same time simultaneously. Um, and I, I, I love, um, I just, I guess I'm hopeful just because I love life in general. Uh, um, and I, I love people and I love, uh, the ways that people can form relationships and, uh, be good to each other. There is, uh, this, this activist, uh, this Jesuit priest, uh, Daniel Berrigan, um, he spent his whole life protesting. He burned draft cards uh, for Viet, uh, Vietnam, and he was arrested countless times. Um, and he has this philosophy of just kind of believing in good, good for its own sake. Um, and while we think about the future, um, I do believe that things can be totally rewritten and changed. But I am not so much invested in creating some kind of like everlasting sun or something like that, that things will always be good because my idea in engagement with the world is such that the good and bad uh, flow together. And so uh, Daniel Berrigan promoted just doing good for its own sake. And that's how I'd like to engage with the world. And that's what makes me helpful. Um, just being part of uh, what is the, uh, the beautiful parts of life. Well, I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate you being on the podcast. Can you tell everybody where we can find you, where we can read your writings, where we can engage with you? Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been such a, a blast and a real treat. Um, really, really honored to be invited on. Um, so, yeah, um, yeah, my name is Jade Fellow. Uh, I am a freelance writer based in Austin, Texas. Uh, I post all of my stuff on jadefabello.com. That's J A D E. F, F as in Frank, A-B-E-L-L-O. I might have just spelled my name wrong because I heard the reverb again. But, <laughs> 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 but anyway, that's Jade Fabello, J-A-D-E, 
F-A-B-E-L-L-O.com. Um, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter, and I, I post my stuff on there as well. Um, and those are linked on my, uh, my website. But I think my Twitter at is Jade underscore FW. And my Instagram name is Jade underscore, or no, yes, Jade underscore underscore F-A-B. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I, I thank you so much for uh, having me on. This has been uh, wonderful. Uh, yeah. Yeah, thank you for being on. It's been uh, just a treat to listen to you speak and to listen to how your thought process, your mind works, and you give me hope. <laughs> thank you much. Thank you for listening to the Afrofuturist podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be a sponsor of the show, please contact me at AhmedBest at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or at AhmedBest on Twitter. If you have any ideas of any great guests that we would like to talk to on the Afrofuturist podcast, please contact me again at AhmedBest at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or contact me on Twitter at AhmedBest. Thank you all for listening again, and I'll see you next time.